we don't come even as our own person. We come because of the precious Lamb of God. Through His finished work, and by grace through faith, we have been afforded the opportunity to come before your throne. It's a great place to be. Your throne is referred to in your writings as the throne of grace and mercy. And we're also told that it is there that we can find grace and mercy to help in time of need. But it's a place that is available any time, any day, any moment, any situation. We have free access. Your word says we may come boldly. And boldly is not about being proud, but it is we can come boldly knowing full well that we'll never be turned away. Some aspects, oh Lord God, it's, it's just like climbing up on your lap and looking into your eyes and even being able to say, Daddy, thank you, God. Thank you for the, the glorious, glorious freedom we have and knowing full well, well that when we approach you all of your attention is about listening to what we have to say and it is in that that we can find great peace and comfort it's knowing full well that you hear us it's understanding that we can trust you in every situation of life so god this morning as we approach your table, a table that holds for us a small bit of grape juice, a tiny bit of cracker, but the representations of those elements are eternal. And as we come to your table this morning, O oh Lord God, I, I ask again that you would teach us you would bring back to our minds a remembrance of maybe we have forgotten since the last time that we were at your table. A remembrance of who you are and who we are and what you have done for us and we fall upon the cross of Christ. For these elements here represent grace and truth. They represent a relationship that we can have with you whereby we can have peace that passes all understanding that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And these elements remind us of the shame and the suffering that our Savior took upon him as that which was determined by you because, oh Father, you laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yet with his stripes we are healed. And so God, teach us again, remind us of the preciousness of the cross. 
And yet, Lord, our hearts still are consumed with concerns of other people. We thank you that things are going well with our brother Harold. We thank you the doctors have been able to come to some conclusion as to what kind of medication he needs in order to combat these blood clots that have invaded his lungs and even around his heart. So God, I pray that the medication that Harold was put on yesterday would be effective that maybe, just maybe, he'd be able to come home sometime today. We leave that in your hands, but in the meantime, God, I pray for his strength. Thank you for protecting him. Thank you, Lord God, for the fact that uh, as Karen travels back and forth from the hospital that you're even protecting her. So we're grateful to hear the news that Harold may very well be visiting us here again, but yet the other part of that is we know, Lord, he's going to have to slow down. So give him, O Lord, the patience. (laughs) The patience to know that the things that he has in his body could could have developed in a much worse condition. But we're grateful for your hand. Lord, we have the privilege so often of hearing from our missionaries, and and we're grateful for them. We thank you for the success of the surgery that uh, Tammy went through, and as Lanty was here describing it for us, we're grateful, Lord, that the surgery went well, and that Tammy Moss is at home recovering. We pray, O oh God, that you would direct Landy and Tammy in this particular health situation. Thank you for directing the hands of the doctors as they were able to remove the cancer tumor that was there. And we pray for her healing, Lord, by your grace and for your glory. Lord, we also, too, lift up to you the pierces as they were here and shared with us with Their work that they do with Ethnos 360, may, oh God, you watch over them as they travel all across this world as representatives of that particular mission board. We pray for uh, John's mom and dad, the transition that they're going through, the transition of needing extra help. And so, Lord, I pray that as John shared with me that the transition of his parents moving into a place where they have assisted living would go smooth. And that they, O oh God, would be cared for in a way that, that would aid them in the remaining days of their time here on this earth. So God, this morning again, we thank you for the sunshine outside. It seems to not only warm our hearts, but lift our spirits. And we're grateful again for your word. As we go into your word, may our minds be held by your spirit to the passage. And may we ask ourselves the question, is this me? So God, you guide us and you direct us. And we'll thank you and praise you in your name. Amen. 
having a number of children, my wife and I did, and when it came to the dinner table, there were usually a lot of questions. Usually, the first question was, what are we having? And then when it was something that they didn't really want to have, let me let you in on a little secret. My father, when he was alive, he loved codfish gravy on toast. That is the most disgusting thing you'll ever put in your mouth. My question was, Mom, how much of this do I have to eat? And usually children will, will look at something and they, they may not like what you have, and so they, they, they begin to ask questions like that. How much do I have to eat? Our children tell our grandchildren, you have to eat three of those things. You well, know, and they stuff them down, I guess, and then run away from the table. Our passage this morning in Luke chapter 22 is interesting in the fact that it has three questions. And the questions lead up to, if you will, a table. It's a table of preparation. It's also a table of celebration. And in Luke chapter 22, we find that it is coming to the near end of the life of ministry of Jesus Christ on this earth. And Luke masterfully, in chapter 22, verse 1, sets the whole stage because he highlights it that it is the time of the unleavened bread celebration and the Passover and if you know anything about those two events, they happen in the same week. In fact, the Passover, according to Leviticus chapter 23 and Exodus chapter 12, is supposed to happen on the 14th day of the month of Nisan, N-I-S-A-N, not N-I-S-S-A-N. It's not a Toyota or Nissan, it's Nissan. And then the day or the celebration of unleavened bread is to go from the 15th for a whole week. And each one of those has significance to Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of those. Because on the Passover, as you remember from your history and Sunday school classes of success, those that you paid attention in, you recognize that the Passover was a celebration and preparation for God to take the nation of Israel out of Egypt. And it was something that they were to celebrate, not only from that particular evening, but the rest, if you will, of the nation's existence. But tied with that was also the celebration of unleavened bread. It was a reminder that they didn't have time to let the bread rise. They had to quickly make food in order that they could get out of town or get out of Dodge, if you will. And so Luke writes for us that these events, these table preparations, if you will, I've entitled it, happen at a very strategic time. Back in Luke chapter 18... 
Jesus makes his last statement to his disciples about the need for him to go to Jerusalem to be handed over to the Gentiles, and there he would be crucified by their hands. And so from Luke chapter 18, here is this journey going toward Jerusalem. They go through Jericho because that's where he meets Nicodemus. No, I'm sorry, Zacchaeus. That's where he meets Zacchaeus. It's in Jericho that as he passes through, that Jesus does other miracles. But when he gets to Jerusalem, the preparation is on the swing. And the first question for us is located in, in Luke chapter 22 and in verse 9. The question is, where do we go? Jesus says to two of his disciples, I want you to go to prepare for the Passover. To them, that's not a problem because they understand what Jesus is talking about. But the question was, where do we go? Where are we supposed to go to make this preparation? Now, there is an interesting statement that sometimes we gloss over quickly and we lose the significance. Jesus gives them information as to where they're supposed to go, but it doesn't fit the culture. Jesus says to them, when you go into the city, you will find a man carrying water. Now, ladies, we don't mean to downgrade you at all, but in that time, that was supposed to be a woman's job. A woman's job. But Jesus and who he is, God incarnate, we trust that you understand that, recognizing the fact, but he said, you will find a man carrying water. Follow him. How wonderful does God take care of our questions? It would have been totally confusing if Jesus said, go into the city and you'll find a woman carrying water. And they'll say, yeah. But when he said, you'll find a man carrying water, ah, we got it. We got it. And then Jesus says, tell them that the master wants the guest room to celebrate the Passover. And so the two disciples went, and they spent a few hours because the room had to be totally cleansed of any yeast, leaven. It had to be set up. It had to be prepared just right. Plate in the middle. Fork on the left. Spoon and knife on the right, underneath, or on top of the napkin. It had to be prepared. No, they didn't have that. In fact, but I will ask you a question. We have a picture 
painted for us by Michelangelo entitled The Last Supper. Let me ask you a question. It's not in this text. What was the last thing Jesus said before they left the upper room? Let me let you know. Jesus said, if you guys want to be in the painting, get on this side of the table. Right. Oh, now you get it. Oh, okay, yeah. There was no table there. Not like we have here and in these particular elements. It was a lounging time. They would have been resting on pillows. But where do we go? The context of this Luke chapter 22 points us to one thing. And that's the cross. Where do we go? We go to the cross. Remember from last week, uh, I trust you remember that there are four things that the cross has. It demonstrates the very love of God. That God so loved the world that he gave. It demonstrates the righteousness of God. That God and all of his glory cannot stand to look on sin, but he sent the sinless one, the song that we sang, he sent his lamb to pay the price that we could not pay in order that we may gain life that we do not deserve. It represents the very power of God. Because it's at the cross where Jesus Christ became victor over the death and hell. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that in the cross of Christ, when Jesus arose, he took the keys of death and hell. He snatched them out of the hand of our arch enemy so that we no longer need to fear And then it demonstrates the very wisdom of God. It was a plan that was destined from the very beginning of Genesis chapter 3 to the time of when Jesus hung between, between two thieves, the cross. It's a place we need to go. And quite frankly, it is the very place, it's the beginning part of our relationship with Jesus Christ. For it is on the cross that Christ shed his blood for the payment of our sin. And John says in 1 John 2, verse 2, and not for ours only, but for the whole world. Jesus Christ paid the price. Have you been to the cross? Have you humbled yourself And recognize that the finished work of Christ upon the cross is all that I need for eternal life. Where do we go? The disciples asked. Jesus said, go to the cross. That's where it begins. The second question is not as as prominent. But we, we know that from verses 14 down to verse 23... 
Jesus literally messes the disciples up. They're used to celebrating the Passover, but now all of a sudden, Jesus is changing the elements. For he says to them, this is my body, which is broken for you. He, he took the bread, the unleavened bread, and he broke it, and he passed it around. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Then he took the cup, and, and he said to his disciples, this is my blood, which is shed for you. They would have remembered At that moment and at that time, they would have remembered that blood was to be sprinkled in representation on the the top of the door and to the two sides that, that as God passed over, anyone in that house would be safe. Now Jesus Christ is saying, it's more than a symbol, now it's a reality. This is who I am. I've come to die. But notice, he turns it a little bit more when he said, but there's someone here who's going to betray me. There's someone here who's going to betray me. Notice their next question. Verse 23, they began to question among themselves. In other words, their question is, is it I? Is it me? In one of the other Gospels, it becomes reality because they begin to ask Jesus, Is it me? Is it me? And then Jesus says, The one who dips the bread with me will be the one who will betray me. We know who it is. We've been let in on the back door of this situation because we know it's Judas Iscariot because the opening verses say Judas was seeking how he can betray Jesus. Is it I? The first question leads us to the cross. This question leads us to stray from the cross. So the question that I pose to you, what what would it be that all of a sudden you would walk away from Jesus Christ? Judas, as you go through the Gospels and you read the account, Judas had one thing in mind, and that was to be the treasurer of the kingdom. He held the money bag. He wanted to be almost second in command He didn't care about anything else. All he wanted to have was a seat of prominence in the kingdom of God. He was holding the money. And when things weren't going the way that they should or the way that he thought it should, Jesus wasn't the person. Life wasn't turning out the way I wanted it. So I'm going to sell him for the price of a slave. I'm going to get something out of it. But he strayed from the cross. 
What's going to happen on Tuesday when we vote if things don't turn out the way we want them to? What would happen in life? All of a sudden you contracted a disease that has been diagnosed that you're not going to spend long on this earth. What happens when the circumstances of life don't match my expectation of who Jesus is? Would I stray from the cross? Is it I, Jesus? Is it I? The third question is the answer to the second question. The third question is pretty easy to find because it begins at verse 24. Because the disciples begin to dispute upon themselves of who's the greatest in the kingdom of God. There's the question. Am I going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God? And Jesus begins to lay out for them what greatness really is about. It's about humility. Where do we go leads us to the cross. Is it I causes us to stray away from the cross? But to be the greatest in the kingdom of God, you must come and humble yourself at the foot of the cross. Both in 1 Peter chapter 5 and in James chapter 4, in both of those chapters and those two books, it relatively speaks of the exact same thing. And it's something like this. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humility. These elements here ooze, if you will, of the reality of humility. It's described for us in Philippians chapter 2 when the Apostle Paul writes that Jesus Christ didn't think of himself as anything greater, but he humbled himself, took on the form of man, came to this earth and died. So dynamic is that humility that the Apostle Paul says, copy that. You want an example of humility? It's Jesus Christ. He didn't argue with God in the Garden of Gethsemane, John chapter 14. He said, thy will be done. He reiterated the fact that I've not come to do anything but the will of my Father who sent me. That's humility. The first question leads us to the cross. The second question causes us to stray away from the cross. But the best way, the best way and the only way to stay at the cross is through humility. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Humility. 
Humility is understanding who I am in the light of who God is. And if you haven't yet taken that inventory, I'm here to tell you something. You don't match up to God. (laughs) But God lovingly takes you as his child and makes us part of a family. So this morning as we partake of these elements, I'm going to ask the gentleman who will be helping and serving of these elements, if you would gather please in the back and it's, it's time to come to the table. Not with questions, but come to the table with assurance and understanding that these elements represent all that we need. That is in Jesus Christ. Pastor Isaac, if you will join me, please. And gentlemen, if you will come. Please, I ask you to stand as we offer thanksgiving for the wafer that represents the body of Christ. Father, our God, we thank you that your lamb, your perfect son, the son of God, came and willingly took on the form of man. He took on flesh. He felt what it was to be hurt felt what it was to be despised. He felt the pain of not just words, but of nails. And we thank you, O Lord God, as as he broke the bread and gave it to his disciples. And as he reminded them that this is my body, which is broken for you that our salvation no longer rests in the blood of a bull or lamb, but in the very person of Jesus Christ. So we ask, O Lord, that as we partake of this element, that we would recognize that we have a Savior who understands and knows. And we give you praise for that, and we thank you in the matchless name of Christ our Savior, we pray. Amen. Thank you. That is by your shed blood that we have peace with God through you. This is your blood that washes our sins away, just doesn't cover them, separates us from them as far as the east is from the west there to be remembered no more. And we're grateful, O Lord God, that even this morning as we partake of this grape juice, that we will be reminded that you willingly shed your blood so that we might live. We praise you and thank you, matchless Savior. Amen.